Welcome to the Behavior Groups Podcast. My name is Kurt Nelson. And I'm Tim Houlihan. We interview interesting people in order to unlock insights into behavioral science and how we can apply them to work and life. This episode is brought to you by the wonderful people at the Lantern Group and Behavior Alchemy, two of the most insightful, focused, smart, dedicated, hardworking, and just plain fun behavior consultancies in the world. Don't start your work day without them. I love that. Uh, okay, so <laughs> recently we had a chance to sit down with David Hussman in the Behavioral Group studio. Uh, David heads up an organization called David Hussman 2.0, and he's an expert in many fields, and he describes his work as coaching, teaching, speaking about concrete techniques that produce sustainable product learning ecosystems across many domains. I met David a number of years ago and wanted him on the show, not because he's an expert in behavioral science per se, but because so much of what he does naturally has a behavioral science component to it. Yes, we dubbed him the accidental behavioral scientist. And I'm sure that the fact that he's a hugely talented musician didn't come into play at all when you booked him for the show. What? 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 <laughs> no, of course not. Well, maybe a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> Tim, this had to be one of our most widespread, wide-ranging behavioral groups discussions. I mean, we covered topics ranging from how our studio compares to Paisley Park obviously really well of course <laughs> to building stuff that makes the world a better place to what we want in a gps food finding app to yeah. netflix using tools like chaos monkey love that name by the way uh to shut down parts of their system because of new constructionist nature of systems and changing how work gets done to agile then and now to human beings and code being dynamic, to Ward Cunningham, to honesty, to design storms with his teenage daughter when they were visiting Pixar, uh, YouTube, Stanford Design School, and Netflix, to the future of the United States, to Sweatbox, to framing, to appreciative learning, to... All right, all right. Like, I think we, we get it. We covered a lot <laughs> of ground with David. We did. It was a fun conversation that had many laughs and many, many deep insights. So listen up. And if you enjoy this, please like it on iTunes or whatever podcast listening service you use. It really helps in spreading the word. And if you're really enthralled, please leave a review. It's what all the cool kids are doing these days. <laughs> and so with that, please enjoy our conversation with David Hussman. David Hussman, welcome to the Behavioral Group Studios. Thanks for having me. What do you think? Pretty cool, huh? We it's an amazing on. facility. I mean, if only people could only see the decor we're sitting in. <laughs> I mean, compared to Paisley Park, do you kind of go, I, I think I'm glad I'm here? Paisley Park's a pretty much a B-. It's the, <laughs> yeah. it's the lighting in the room that's stunning to me. Uh, for those people who have no idea, it's the dining room of my, my abode. So, David, welcome. Thank you for coming. We, uh, we appreciate this. So... So tell us about. Uh, let, let's just jump right in here. Uh, you, you've been through. Uh, you've been a serial entrepreneur, and uh, you you founded Def Jam. Now you're on to David Husman 2.0. Tell us about what's going on now. Yeah, I feel like I spent uh, in the in the part of my life I had to do with building software, which is about 25 years now. I just worked a lot on the construction side. I just stumbled and bumbled into this agile thing. I didn't really expect it to ever be part of my life I feel like I'm sort of the accidental coach too <laughs> now I just I really I don't want to talk to people about 
their process unless it's about making a better product you know it's kind of just real back to like let's build stuff that makes the world a better place it doesn't have to be the coolest thing but you know the things that make someone's life easier make someone smile that's the stuff I want to be involved in. That's what David Husband 2.0 is. Wow. So can you give us an example of that? Um, without breaking confidentiality. I mean, I'm working on like a, a new product development for someone locally here, and the guy's got this idea of uh, people of a certain age still are stuck sort of between a physical and a digital realm, and they want to be able to capture physical things in a digital space really quickly so they can sort of catalog them. So yeah. Without telling you too much about the product, it's like... The equivalent of so many people have so many great pictures that are just dying somewhere on their phone or some hard drive or something. And right. there's so much digital photography being captured, but no one's correlating in a way that makes someone be able to kind of quickly go, let me show you some pictures. You watch people go to share their pictures. It's still a pretty clumsy experience. Oh, yes. I love things like that where it's a very natural need. And technology just really needs to come in and sort of not mess it up too bad. Right. Make it easier for people. Uh, I was on the road just the past few days and wondered why I couldn't ask my GPS to tell me when I when I get far enough along my journey to get to noon, where would be good places to eat? You know, around noontime. Exactly. Like what? What? My GPS knows what my speed is. It's calculating when I'm going to get to my destination. Uh, you know, I left at eight o'clock in the morning. It would know about where I'm going to be at noon. Couldn't it come back and inform me? Of but there's that? no way that data doesn't exist in your at max two systems. Just no one's putting it together. Are, are you just that lazy that you can't <laughs> do it yourself? <laughs> I'm sitting here going. It doesn't seem like a big stretch there, but I I just want technology to to work for me, <laughs> so that so that my brain can address bigger picture issues like that like, wheat field in iowa that you're yeah, driving through. okay right. good good that's right well, well like that app could be called like eat it up you're driving north on on through a 94 you're somewhere between alexandria and fergus you're coming up on one of those but you don't go that way all the time and you kind of bring up eat it up and you say hey chinese and it finds you a place you know and that's a great idea with chinese at noon you yeah. know yeah, yeah. i yeah. want to or you know Italian yeah. it. Now that yeah. that has some value to it. Just oh, finding oh, a place. No. <laughs> <laughs> but I like the, the you, you talked, uh, David, about making it easier. And I think from a, a behavioral science perspective, yeah. one of the, the 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 you know it's it's common sense. But one of the big insights is that people are much more likely to do something the easier it is, even if it is you know clicking one button as opposed to clicking through two buttons. And that component of, of your work, I think, really ties back into some of this behavioral science stuff. So um, help us understand. I know you, you said you're not a behavioral scientist, but you're more of an accidental behavioral scientist. Mm-hmm. Um, but what are those aspects that you find really help people in when you're developing a product, developing some of that stuff? What are those things that you find make it easier? I'm trying. I'm just gonna try not to go too far in the weeds. Somewhere in the '80s, a bad thing happened, and there was like a separation, sort of like chemistry and alchemy or something okay. like that. And IT came up, and it was a bad thing. You know, IT is an <laughs> evil thing. It's the business and IT. And sort of before that, in the '70s, you had people trying to solve problems for people. 
Okay. You and, using uh, early computers. Yeah, and early like computing. That. And yeah. in the seventies, you had to work really hard to get anything done in computing. You know, and the stuff you got done was really volatile. Now, zoom forward to today. And you have companies like Netflix that are so absolutely certain they can get stuff done. The constructionist nature of what they're doing is so constrained that Netflix is just going out and randomly shutting down VMs or shutting down regions. They have these tools called like Chaos Monkey. The Chaos Monkey, you just let, let it loose in your production environment. It just randomly shuts down virtual machines because Netflix is like, it's going to happen. We should stop worrying about it. We should just be ready for it. It's a little bit like getting a vaccine so you don't get the flu. Wow. And when, when people, I think, get more confident about construction, you would hope that they would start letting go of the constructionist aspect and start kind of embracing the human side of things. And like, well, I'm going to get it done. Therefore, you know, maybe I should think about whether it's a good thing. It's like I was, there's so many obvious analogies. So, like, here's a soccer team that walks in the field, and they have all their positions, but yet everybody wants to be the fullback. So when they when they cut loose, the ref drops the ball, everybody runs to the back, and their team kills them because they just play the simple game. Yeah. So you got to know the fundamental rules, and you have to be good at that, but that doesn't mean you win. You know, in music, you all three of us can probably strum out GCD, but none of us are going to write a Neil Young song, you know? and Because we're, we're, we're not Neil Young. But until you can make it through GCD, chuck in a little A minor or something like that, you don't really feel like you can play music. You're just slamming on the guitar. You're more of a, me- a mechanic or a constructionist. Well, you two might be able to slam out GCD. <laughs> I, on the other hand, looked it and then go faster uh, than you could imagine. I bet. Yeah, yeah, truly. So, how did Agile help? For instance, how? If, if so, rolling back the clock. Yeah, yeah. You know the 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 dark uh, the dark lords uh, in IT are gaining power. How, how does how does agile help uh, when it when it comes into the world? You know, I mean, answering that question from today's frame, it's been interesting. It's the very first movement I've been in from the beginning. Mm. So now I get to be one of the crabby old guys that's just not like their first album. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I remember when they were good. (laughs) Yeah, you know, uh, know, the people that introduced it to me, I always talk about this, were the people from Tektronics. Kent Beck and Ward Cunningham had a big influence on me. But Tektronics was this really interesting small, not a small, but an interesting technology company in Portland. Portland has a really similar set of values to like Minneapolis. The cities feel really similar. Right. So the agile stuff for me wasn't so much, here's the mechanics of how to do stuff. Here's a new process to do. I mean, meeting those guys, we'd sit around and talk about like, what are our values? I was like, wow, this is totally different because no technology group I've ever sat around. We talked values like open and honest communication. I took those these agile ideas to the Netherlands, and one of the shocking things of my first gig in Amsterdam was, in the United States, we typically, when there's a problem, we say, oh, I don't want to step on his toes. The Dutch expression for that is, don't worry, I don't have big feet. <laughs> wow. So, wow. The, the agile stuff to me is, wow. you know, when it's kind of this like way of thinking and being along with this simple set of mechanics, I think it allows you to focus more on the things that are really the intangible, the you can't measure if they're correct, like like human factors, right? Like complexity in the code. It's not just the human side. The code stuff turns out to be more discrete, whereas the human stuff is ultimately dynamic. You know, you're never going to get it right mm-hmm. for any extended period because people will change. 
So, so that causes a lot of problems, right? Because uh, because of the dynamism of the human condition, um, it, you know, the, it's possible that the code could all could be in a constant state of retweaking. Were there fundamentals then? Did you did you try to hang on a second? It's not possible. That is that oh. is true. The code is always in a dynamic state. Oh, okay, okay. It that's has one of the be. that's one of the mistakes people make is they they have this latent mindset of we got it done. It's done, so we're done. You know, it's like that works for pies and cakes. You know? <laughs> Go on, I'm sorry. No, but, but not for code. Yeah, not for living things. Even yeah. songs aren't necessarily done. But yeah. go on. Yeah. Oh, man. <laughs> it was, sometimes I thought that some were done. But, um, but okay, so to, um, it, are there some elements in, in, the, in the application of Agile that are really addressing more fundamental human the, the, it, not so much about sort of upper layer processes, but sort of more fundamental. This is how we're going to work together. This, like you talk about open and honest communication. Right. Yep. You know, uh, what are some of the other elements that, that you think Agile brought to the table? Yeah, in many ways, I think it just, like a lot of things, I don't think those guys created anything. I think they put a name around something that was emergent because it was emergent in Minneapolis, Boston, Portland, all at the same time, if you look okay. historically. And if you look at the people that I think were really great at it, there was always a level of humility. Now, there's not a practice called be humble. But like open and honest was a way to kind of say, I did that. I'll give you a great example. There used to be these things called fit rooms, and it was about this framework for integrated testing that Ward Cunningham wrote. And Ward walked into the room one time, and there's like eight machines, and we're all pairing and writing tests, and you could just see Ward walk in the room. It's like there's all these whispers. At that time, there was this thing called your ward number, like Kevin Bacon. (laughs) Ward sits down and pairs with someone. The guy's probably terrified because Ward's an imposing individual. And he was a few minutes later, goes, who wrote blah, blah, blah? And this guy raises his hand. Ward goes, I just broke your code. We need to talk to each other. And I thought, that's it, right? That's the piece that those guys brought forward. Some of it was in the books. Some of it was in the people. Yeah. Probably why... For instance, extreme programming was never going to immediately get huge because it was too much a mixture of like spoken and known traditions. That sounds like respect. That yeah, sounds like sure. honor. That sounds like reciprocity. Yeah. Like I'm, I'm going to take the liberty to speak to you honestly and right. expect that you're going to speak honestly to me. And I'm going to own the parts that's mine. You know, I mean, that's what's interesting in the Netherlands. So, yeah, they might say I don't have big feet, but if there's a problem sitting between the two of you and us and you created the problem, I might look at the problem and say, that's really a piece of junk. There's only one level of interaction between you and I, but I'm still talking, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm still talking about the problem. Right. And I think it scares a lot of people when they go to the Netherlands because people are very direct. I find that really refreshing because... The more you can work in a blameless ecosystem, the faster you can kind of surface all the issues, especially if you have people that have skills. We were just having a conversation in, a, in another podcast of, of how difficult it is for people to actually criticize others and to give that yeah. real feedback. And this was a researcher, uh, Christine, who is... Who Christine happens is, to be in Copenhagen right yeah, now. Well, or Gothenburg. Yeah, yeah Gothenburg. So, but she was talking about the research that they did where you're talking to others and you had groups of people and you're trying to tell people how attractive they were. And, and she said everybody basically, you know, 
lied. Upped, up, lied, basically. <laughs> lied. Said, oh, you're much more attractive than I really think you are and different things, even when there was monetary components on it. And so I, I think the hard part about any of this stuff and this human element is that we are humans and and sometimes it's not it's not only difficult to hear criticism but sometimes it's really hard to give construct even if it's constructive criticism even if it's not just it, that sucks it, but right. this, you know what I, I think it could be better that's hard to do so how are some of the how do you guys get over that i mean what are some yeah. of the, the things that you guys do so just i mean it's such a great thread so I was fortunate enough to just take my family out to California on what I called like a design storm because my little daughter is curious about design. And we got to go to uh, Pixar and the VR lab at YouTube oh and Netflix and the Stanford Design School and a couple other places. Pretty much it's basically Disneyland for someone who's curious about so stuff. So cool. So yeah. almost every place we went, my wife asked the design people, well, how do you think Amelie, it's my daughter, could get better? And they said, well, just... You know, just do what you love. Make sure you do what you love. So then we're at Netflix and we're with the mobile group. And the one guy shows my daughter something, kind of puts her on the spot. And it's like, well, what do you think of this design? I was really impressed. And so she starts kind of giving him feedback. And his boss walked over and he said, great job, you know, kind of acknowledging that she's 15. He said, that's really important. The next thing you need to learn is to be able to take that mm. from someone else. And I thought, wow, this is really, that, that ecosystem... And that team at Netflix is a mobile team where the design and the development groups sit together. And that's okay. a little bit something that's gone pretty wrong in the Agile space because yeah. it's become so constructionist. And when you tear the design away, you start tearing away the human factors sort of piece of it. And it's easier for the geeks to be more excited about Java than about whether they're producing a great experience. Directly, how do I do it? I try to get people, especially the people that are closer to the code, talking and having empathy about the people that they're impacting nothing really new about that right that those ideas have been out there for a long time and there's lots of tools to try but i think you have to figure out like what tools work better in what context okay yeah so it is contextual oh massively i mean you go to asia asia's and this is a stupidly kind of from the land of dumb broad sweeping generalizations but <laughs> bring them on <laughs> a lot of ecosystems japan's a really good example japan's a radically different culture than ours yeah and like in some of the classes i've taught i've had to learn to pause for a long time after a question because people were very reflective and if you say a fail fast, fail often, that's not really the right model in their ecosystem. So you have to use the word learning instead of like failure. Fail. Interesting. So it might say, what do you think we could learn in this situation? How do you get people to explore? But context is king. I mean, the weird part about, I think, about America is, while there's lots of things about our country that are embarrassing and such, there's lots of things about our country that are spectacular. You know, we're yeah. the... We're the, we're the country of tomorrow. We're the Walt Disney. Fail six times. Whatever. It doesn't matter. Let's do it again. You know, like, what, did you hear that Bezos quote? <laughs> Someone said they were talking about some big failure, like $50 million. And Bezos like, I'm working on much bigger failures than that right now. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> yeah. How great is that? Yeah, it's not just spectacular. That language. is spectacular. Like, so what do you think? We're talking about the contextual component of this. but And you also mentioned Netflix Mobile and the way that they were addressing your daughter and different things, was yeah. that a different culture that they've cultivated there versus some of the other ones that you that you visited? Or is that... Well, Pixar has this thing. So Disney used to have this thing called the sweat box. I think you can, have, okay. you can look it up. I think that's right. 
because it was this little room that they went into because it was so hard to construct a short. And it was this tiny room and it was really hot and they would all gather around and watch this thing. So we're at Pixar and it's kind of got this big giant open room and then there's these two rooms on either sides. And uh, a lot of these big fancy dudes like Ed Catmull, I think that's how you pronounce his name. Okay. I'll go into this room and I'm just like, oh my God, this is it. You know, this, yep. this is the mothership to me. <laughs> you know? And suddenly this curtain goes down. And she goes, oh, they're going into this wet box. And so they just watch the dailies. Yeah. And then they go in there and they sort of rip on things. And they say, okay. here's, here's what's wrong. Here's what could be better. Um, what I've done locally here is... And I stole this from uh, Bob Martin of Object Mentor and sort of modified it a little bit. But okay. at Dev Jam, we always did these coding dojos. So two people get up and solve a problem, and everybody watches them solve the problem. But you give them a problem that they can't actually solve in five minutes, and you only give them five minutes. Okay. And then when their five minutes are up, you're really trying to say, how well did they work together? Did they get to the root of the problem? Right. Not who can write the code the fastest. And I had the audience always kind of start by saying, what did you see him do that was interesting? Because programmers are, there's like a gajillion jokes about how many programmers does it change to do anything. Yeah. <laughs> Those jokes are endless. <laughs> so what did you think was interesting? So they start out with positive affirmation. What did you see that was confusing? Because I think that helps the people inject a little bit of humility into their world, you know? Mm -hmm. And then what ideas might you have? Not how would you do it? Right. So I think for me, those are like really subtle word choices to get people to have empathy and humility. And it doesn't always work. There's lots of arrogant jerks in programming, like there are arrogant jerks in everything. You know, yeah. there's more or less. But well, it, 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 this, is, this certainly plays to the, psych, the very subtle psychological elements of um, the difference between me saying, um, um, tell, me, tell me how I should do this, or I, I want your help doing this, versus I'd like your advice on how to get this done. Right that we respond in a very different different way. Bob Cialdini has done a lot of work to, to try to sort of uh, tease out how generous people can be and how mm -hmm. open they can be when they're asked for advice versus when you say, well, will you help me do this right. or tell me how to get this done? Then it's then it's you're, you've just narrowed the the response to this very very small box. Well, and it comes down to framing, right? And so right. framing is right. a big uh, behavioral science component in, in, you know, you can have, you can say exactly the same thing or the, have the same content in there, but you frame it differently and the response and the behaviors that you get out of that are vastly different. Yeah. And so it, you know, it, just those word choices that get done are important. And, and oftentimes I don't think we, we, we don't think enough about our word choices. Mm -hmm. We go on autopilot we just make assumptions and we don't think about that, particularly in situations where it is important, where you are making some of those interactions with humans and how are they going to respond to this. And so I think that's an important part of thinking about how do you improve processes. And sometimes it's the it's the language that you use. Man, so. it's hard to sit here, you guys. I got so many threads firing. I <laughs> stack overflow kind of a thing. I was just thinking like... Um, one of the things I, I took from a woman, Diana Larson, that I used in coaching all the time was um, a tiny slice from appreciative listening, appreciative inquiry, just yeah. called appreciative listening. So I would have these coaches that wanted to be good at coaching 
And I would say, go sit with this other person. And, you know, the rule is for the 15 minutes while you're sitting with that person, you can't talk about yourself. You have to learn to talk, talk about them. And so at the end of that 15 minutes, I want you to play back to them sort of what you heard. 15 and, minutes is a long time to do that. Yeah, and, and try, you know, I would walk around as a teacher and sit with people, and you could see some people just could only do it for a little bit. They just couldn't, you know. And I think, like, one of the things I found far, hard in the Agile space is listening to people say stuff to me that I'm pretty certain is wrong and realizing that that is important between, you know, it doesn't matter if it's fact or perception. People feel like they have to be heard, and if you do not listen to them, they just keep saying the same thing over and over again, and then it can sort of just generate noise, yep. like that little cloud that follows pig pen around. You know? <laughs> and so, like, back to your question, I don't think that's so much an agile thing, but like when they rolled out this idea of working in these small teams and having these daily discussions and these retrospectives, it was all these forums where all that stuff could happen. Stories were called story cards. They weren't user stories. They didn't have any formulaic story. They were just like, they used to be called the contract for a conversation. Okay. It was not, yeah, but that stuff sort of got lost because it couldn't be commoditized and turned into a certification program. Which <laughs> right. I was complaining to this brilliant sage in the, in the whole software world named Jerry Weinberg. Okay. He was just like, you know, there's a bunch of Weinbergs in town here. His group is almost cultish. <laughs> and I, I called him up once I was just ranting and I paused and he goes wow sounds like you're pretty mad Dave <laughs> <laughs> and then he just basically kind of said you know don't yell into the wind man soft certification programs are going to come and go and all you can do is go out there and be yourself and speak truth to power and all yeah. that stuff that like you would have heard at a hippie 60s movement you know all, all those truths that have been there for a very long time so Tim fits in right away there. There you go. <laughs> Thank, you. Thank you for putting that on. I want to go back to, you talked about appreciative listening and appreciative yeah. inquiry. Right. You know, David Cooper writer, uh, Case Western was one of the original developers of that. But I think it's a really interesting piece because I worked with it in the early 90s when I was back at BI and we did some work with... Um, uh, uh, some of the, the the people there, but we actually changed the language of right. how we did some of the the team building uh, rules and structures from being a negative to putting it into a positive right. spin. Yep. And and amazingly, you get a different reaction. You get right. very different reactions. So it's, it goes back. I had never put those two back together from a framing perspective and that appreciative inquiry, even though that's exactly what it is. So. Interesting insights. Well, what I was trying to get people to do is to stop thinking about how to do Agile and start telling their stories about how they were successful. And Because instead of, yeah. well, we do this practice and this practice and this practice, it's like, forget the practices. Tell me something that's really positive. Let's talk yeah. about how you made a change. Yeah. You know? It going back to your you know music piece, right? It's you know the AGD, you know, but now you got to be you got to be able to, to to tell the story about the song, right? And, how do you create that song? That's right. It's interesting that, that, you, that you guys lead, that you lit up over the word framing. So, yeah. like, one of the things I think that went wrong in the agile space is we tried to sort of shrink down the requirements gathering. And if you sum up what we did, I think we did that because we. You mean that that step? Excuse that me. Really that that step in the in the agile process. Right. Well, in the in okay. the traditional kind of waterfall process, we'd spend a lot of times up front trying to understand the problem and then when then we just had to build it kind of a thing and we realized that when we started building it 
even if we understood it correctly, it might have changed because we spent so much time trying to understand it. <laughs> we shrunk that down, but too much. We shrunk it down. We collapsed it into like, we, we said, boy, if we have the person sitting with us, the scrum product owner, the XP customer, then we can write less down because we can have more high fidelity conversation. And there's lots of discussion around that. But I started coming up with kind of like, we have to not get it right, but we have to narrow our universe. We have to start out with a smaller subset of things to invalidate. And so the, what I do is kind of say, you got to talk about why, who, what, where, and then why again. And the first why I used to call collaborative chartering, but I switched it to collaborative framing. Okay. Oh, interesting. Very, very simple little frame, because I think that's a really solid metaphor. Yeah. You know, and put it up on the wall. Everybody can sort of look at it. You can point at it. You can write on it. You can scribble on it. You can say that's wrong. That frame was meaningful when we started three months ago, but we've learned a lot in those three months, and it's wrong. So we should not just kind of keep it up there. You know, it, we should. It should be changed. We yeah. should have a new frame. Right, unless unless one of us is like Jefferson, and we just happen to stumble into like you know the Declaration of Independence or something like that, you know. Yeah. What was he reading at the time? That's my question. It's like, wow, what was going through that dude's head? Um, I'm a history nerd, though, and there's a book called it's called like Letters or something. It has these letters between Franklin and Jefferson, and I think Jefferson's wife, and it's there. It's awesome. I, I got it after being at the National Archives because. National Archives have all these letters that were written up to the posting of the Declaration of Independence. And if you're ever depressed about democracy, you'll read those letters. They're so inspiring. Yeah. Because they're discovering, like someone discovered Agile, they're like, no, there's this other way of running a country. Uh, you know, it's pretty neat. That's it is interesting, cool. though, to, to think about going down this, this rabbit hole, but those letters, because there's another book, and I can't remember the name, but it's the letters between Jefferson and Adams. Yeah, and yep, yep. And I mean, because they had this antagonistic kind of that might be approach. the book I'm thinking of. Is, is it? And it's one of their wives is involved. Yeah, too. their That's wives. The book I'm are, about. Yeah, yeah. It, it's just it's fascinating. <clears throat> I mean, it it literally is this whole thing, and you, you you think about them, and then you know they they ended up dying on the same day on the Fourth of July. <laughs> yeah. you know, Apocryphal. fifty years yeah. after. But bring it full circle to your comment. Like, I don't think people. I don't think it's an agile practice. But like the idea of story cards was not to write a better requirements document. It was to start a better conversation, but it was also to say more with less. You know, choose your words carefully. And so that is people, that the card part? I mean, yeah, limiting yeah. the amount of space that you Correct. actually had. Well, that was also to make sure things didn't get too large. But that's that's a little bit naive to assume that fewer words don't mean more. Right. You know? But I think when when we started to write them, we ripped up a lot. I used to have these BAs come to these sessions like. 1999, I would say, print out one of your use cases. Show up with this thing, it's like 24 pages. And I pick it up, and I would say, you know, approximately, how right is this? It's like, oh, it's wrong, it's incomplete. And I'd tear it in half in front of them, and they'd freak out. Like, how agile are you going to be if you're freaked out when I tore up your printout? You know, yeah. I mean, that's like, we can just print another one. Maybe that wasn't very nice. But I was trying to kind of get to the point of like, permanence is like, is, you know, is naive. In the in you know in the face of what I think most software is dynamic, it's a dynamic ecosystem. There's no pie. You didn't just take his pie and, and yeah. eat it, right? Correct. It's constantly going. Or back. stick your foot through it. Yeah, it's just <laughs> that's right. It's just a piece of paper. Yeah, that's right. We, you know, uh, David, you've talked about a, a bunch of authors. Diane Larson. Uh, what what are the authors that have influenced you the most? Who, who, who have you read that? 
that seemed to bring ideas to you that were that really shook the ground that you walked on in the last 10 years well, let's <laughs> yeah let's say the last 10 years yeah i mean if you go back further the first author that comes up is robert piercig and he's on the art of motorcycle maintenance and lila oh yeah, yeah. and he was yeah. a he was a technical writer at control data i did not realize that yeah well oh. they leave on their motorcycles from minneapolis but and more recently two people really come to mind for me um one is a guy named Daniel Leventon. And his first yeah. book I read by him is called This Is Your Brain on Music. Which Pretty, is a great book. So fun. For it's a him. great yeah. book, yeah. So he's a music producer turned neuroscientist. Then he wrote another book yeah, called... Yeah, excuse me. Yeah. But that is not a trivial thing. No. Right. He, and he was a successful music producer and obviously a very bright guy. And he became a neuroscientist. I just I just want to take a moment to pause on that because that just blew me away <laughs> right, when, yeah. when he was like, yeah, when I was producing music and now he's a PhD in neuroscience. It's like... And a leader in his field, right? He's not just like some guy who lucked yeah. out and got a job. <laughs> right, yeah. right, right. <laughs> yeah, there's a spectacular video mm. of him and four other neuroscientists with Bobby McFerrin. And McFerrin's standing up and he goes, ba, ba. He jumps up and down the stage. He goes, ba. He goes, ba, ba. He jumps over here. Sorry, I didn't sing it well. Different pitch. Yeah, he sings a perfect fourth. He goes, jumps back and forth. Ba, 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 ba. He jumps up to a perfect fifth. And the audience sings with him. So he starts jumping on this sequence because that's a really known pattern. Okay. And then he starts jumping and he jumps past that. And the audience sings the right tone. And he looks at the neuroscientists like, where does that come from? And that's Leventon's research is a lot of like, like, where is that stored? And his most recent book, or no, he's got a newer book, but the one that I really like is called The Organized Mind. I'm not and, familiar with that one. No, and now we're, now we're really close to a lot of behavioral science concepts because the book is really like, how do we organize the world? How right. do we make structure out of things? And... I would say a piece of the book that really resonated with me, it didn't necessarily teach me, but it was that adding more structure in the face of a complex problem does not solve the problem. Mm -hmm. It clouds the problem. But I think that's people feel better because they're following the process, you know? That's right. And that leads into the other author that's really influenced me a lot is Nassim Taleb. Wow. wrote the Black Swan yeah. and yeah. Um, Anti-Fragile, which ironically has the word agile in the middle of it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. not, even, not even close to ironic. Yeah, yeah, just, exactly. You totally nailed that yeah. one. <laughs> and he's just like, he's an alto. That's a, that's a, he's a subtractionist. Oh, yeah. So that's one of the things I've done with a lot of these agile teams is they walk in, they start, they're, if they're talking more about agile, their process, than they are about their product, I'll go into their retrospective if they have some format like that and say, everybody show up with one thing we can do, one thing we can stop doing yeah. and be as productive. And people are sort of amazed by that. Well, it's the nature of us is that we just let things bloat. Happens yeah. in code, happens in requirements. I mean, it happens in all organizations. A lot yes, of the work, a, a lot of the work that, that I do around total rewards is we'll go in and we'll say, do an audit of just their reward systems and we're looking at it and saying so this recognition program that you have what was why was it put in place and they go well it was put in place 12 years ago and it was for this and you're <laughs> yeah. going and that's not even you're you're in a whole different environment now but you're still doing it yeah you know so it, i think yeah. that fits across many different genres it's not just in there it's like look at the things that we're doing and and constantly reminding ourselves of going back to 
you know, those basics and saying, why are we doing this? Is there still a reason that we need to do this? Most of the time it was put in there for a good reason, but that reason doesn't always stand the test of time. So, so. what's after Agile? What, what comes next? I don't know. I want to say one last thing. So I oh, yeah, tell you a music story. I was at the, the studio downtown Minneapolis called Metro Studios. I think that was the name. And I had this like eight track I used to do my recordings on. I was okay. mixing in the studio. This is a perfect like subtractionist thing. David Rifkin is there. He produced Prince's early stuff. All okay. Stuff, and he somehow took a shine to me. He was really nice. And I'm working really hard mixing this terrible heavy metal thing. It's never going to be good. It's just crappy. And Rifkin stops the tape and says... You know, Nick, no matter how much you polish a turd, it's only going to shine so bright. (laughs) (laughs) I've been working on this mix. So he takes my mix and he zeroes the the mix. It means it takes all the knobs and puts them up to zero. So that's a nightmare, right? Because you have just spent hours getting everything set. I'm just totally freaked out. Rifkin can suss this. And he takes takes the EQ, and the EQs are what's called the parametric EQ. So... He takes they're either plus or minus. Okay. He takes the plus side. He turns it way up. And then there's a frequency sweep that goes from like bass up to treble for the audience. Okay. And he spins through and he spins back and forth and he's just listening for crappy sounds. Every time he finds a crappy sound, he knocks it way down. He, he, yeah. All he did was find the sounds that he found offensive in all the different instruments. I mean, boom, 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 boom. Left drums, right drums, good bass, guitar, 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 vocal. Pushes up the mix, sounded better than what I had done in two hours. It was all 100% subtractionist. <laughs> wow. Yeah, I mean, wow. that was like a lesson. I should have given him a thousand bucks right there because <laughs> yeah. I just stole that. I took it everywhere I went because most gear, even if it's expensive, has a tone to it. And so if you don't like the tone, you don't want to add more. Right. But that's not, people don't see that in programming. You know, or in process. Yeah, it's I don't just, think they see that it there. weird transparent thing, and we don't have great words for it. We can't make. We can only can get them to draw visualizations, but it's tough for people to experience it. Or, well, in behavior, I think I think about choice architecture. <clears throat> Save more tomorrow is a is a simple model, or or, or just uh, the idea of asking people to sign up for a four hundred one k, giving people the choice of when you come into a company and you have the opportunity to say, I want to sign up for the four hundred one k, or I don't. Seems like a perfectly legitimate question to ask, um, but changing the question to a more subtractionist model to say you're already opted in. If you don't want to be a part of it, that's cool. You can just check the box and sign here. But with the opt-out model, people are saving at right. rates of north of eighty percent, whereas with the opt-in model, they're only saving at rates of about forty percent. Yeah. It's interesting. You talk about the tone of you know the equipment and different things, and I, I, I'm thinking about that now from a culture perspective within an organization. And there's an underlying tone of of culture that you don't necessarily even know. Yeah. It's that yeah. it's the type of conversation that's happening that you've just become so deaf to when you're in it, when you're in it right? Yeah, and and yeah. it's only when you get new people in and they kind of take a, a look around and they go what. You know that that it's that it's there, and usually though they end up getting assimilated in. It's like the Borg, right? All of a sudden, right. you know, you're gonna just be assimilated in. And I I love this, you know, kind of reductionist component because it's like saying, let's take a look at this and let's go back. What are all of those things that right. that we have? Let's let's listen for those tones because they become just background noise. And and when they're background noise, we don't. We don't pay attention to them, and they can have a big impact on. Be interesting to know if there's someone somewhere 
that maybe has put that into a process in their organization. So quarterly, they get like the leads of the company together and say, what can we take away? Yeah. Like what's that guy wrote the book Maverick? Ricardo Selmner. He's sort of the Steve Jobs of South America. Okay. A lot of people don't know. Maverick is still an interesting book. I mean, I know a lot of people that know this guy don't necessarily like him. But I think he's probably one of these people that some people don't like him because he's willing to kind of just name that. I don't think we need to do that. Yeah. Apparently, and there's a book called um, This uh, Insanely Simple, The Obsession That Drives Apple Computing. Apparently, okay. Steve Jobs used to walk into rooms and say, what's this meeting about? Mm-hmm. Why are you here? Why are you here? Why are you here? Why are you here? And if there was like eight or more people, he would say, thanks for showing up. I'm going to ask you to leave. Yeah. <laughs> Ouch. And a lot of people hated it, but like, you know, how many meetings do I go to companies that seem to have this, I don't know, it's like it's still in like little principle. Every time the meeting happens, another person gets added, you know, and suddenly there's three people on the phone who obviously aren't listening. <laughs> and, you know, it's like, I just find those meetings demoralizing oh, to I, be in. I, I, it's one of my pet peeves, and there's yeah. an organization I work with that will rename, re- remain unnamed. Good, good. <laughs> That, uh, li- I mean, they've literally flown up their entire team. That one person on that team instead of seven would have been better because six of them are sitting not even at the table; they're sitting behind the table, and they're all have their computers up and they're all working on other completely stuff. Completely disengaged. Yeah, they're completely disengaged. There's absolutely no reason for them to be there, and they're always behind. So we're always going, "Oh, we're too busy to do stuff," and you're going, "No, you're not." No, dude. Back to your word question, I got to tell you, like. Best one of the best moments of my life. Yeah, we're at Pixar, and so at Dev Jam, I got rid of the word meeting because I hate meetings. I okay. call them jam sessions. Oh, and then we were trying to figure out we had some of our best meetings like walking around the neighborhood. So I was like, what would you call that? So I can't call it a walking meeting. And I was like, so what kind of musical groups walk and play interesting music? Well, it's not marching bands, so. It's Mardi Gras. So we used to call walking around the block having a meeting on Mardi Gras. I love that. And so we're at Pixar and she goes, well, I got to go to this jam session. My daughter just looks up at me and I'm just like, yeah. I am the man. Pixar in my DNA. It's interesting, though. You talk about the walking set, your Mardi Gras. And, yeah. you know, reading about Steve Jobs and he always talked to I mean, many of his meetings were walking around. Yeah. And, and there's other leaders that... Uh, you know, in their conversations, I've heard about that where the the best interactions they have are these walking meetings that they do. Don't you say? I, uh, I work with a researcher right, at Carnegie Mellon. Yeah, yeah George Lonestein never sits in. If we're going to have a serious conversation, we get out and walk. And yeah. and by the way, we don't just walk around campus. We usually drive somewhere that's a cool place to be. Yeah, you know, like be inspired by the surroundings. Right, right. Don't don't just like get out and just blah blah blah. Like go to a cool place and then and then walk around out there. And it's it's remarkably do you think part of that you guys is the think about like when you do have a really great walk with a friend yeah it's a little bit like it feels like that might be a deep memory and you walk along and you're next to that person and so if you go out and you do that and suddenly you're talking about a topic which otherwise might be inane or something that's complex it's a little bit like that you know that smell of grandma's house going to hitting that olfactory gland it's like suddenly you light up yeah. and all these synapses i don't know if there's any truth to that but I, that resonates it that's, seems that, like that's where our brains yeah. work yeah and i think it is i think there's the the element of having that kinetic movement that 
does it. It gets blood pumping more right. than just sitting, so you're getting your brain activated. I also think there's something about walking. You're usually walking side by side, so you're not having this facial component. Right. So you're. I think there's something to that too, where you are. Uh, having this element where you can be your mind is is opening up you're not focusing on faces because we're so focused in on faces but by having that ability to be looking like you said at a cool tree or the pond that's going by or whatever the rocks on the ground you're expanding that horizon and if that's a if that's a good experience isn't that the anti-experience when you walk into a room, everybody sits down at the table, and flips up their laptops. There's no good mojo, man. It's like, hey, let's be creative and collaborative. It's like, you know. Kind of like what we're doing here. So, uh, But we've got the behavioral groove studio. Yeah. Uh, we got that's windows. Really but that's a little bit of the problem walking around, though, because it'd be great if we just had kind of like virtual whiteboards. You know, I just take my phone and project yeah. this thing up and I start writing on something yeah. like that because you miss that. Yes. You know? Yeah. Yes. That, well, it's the capturing tricky. of the information sometimes it's like yeah. oh, we had the best idea what was it uh... yeah, I don't remember <laughs> well, at least I don't I know other people might remember Which is weird. I mean to bring it full circle so we got these amazing powerful devices that you know we take pictures with and talk into and a lot of the apps on them are crappy why is there not some way it, it's not just capturing your voice it's capturing your voice and turning it into something that's a visualization so if there was like an app that allowed you to kind of have had a rudimentary set of of sketch note items yeah and you could talk into it and it could kind of pop it up and you could kind of go oh yeah and suddenly there was some fun to it jeff Patton, a friend said we take pictures of our whiteboards not because they're good pictures because they're like vacation photos hey remember when <laughs> when he said that i was like wow that's so astute right oh that's my just brilliant yeah it's the the business vacation pictures. Of that's like, an experience. Yeah. Yeah. Scribbling. You draw your boxes and circles, and I erase those and say that's crap. And I draw my boxes and circles. You got the red mark over no here, better. the green right, over yeah. here, and you go. It's, I remember that now, and it brings you back into that moment. <laughs> yeah. National Lampoon's business vacation doesn't really doesn't really render, does it? <laughs> um, okay. Uh, we we do have to talk about music, David. Oh, I'm yeah. sorry. It's, you, no. I know you're not all that familiar with it. It's kind of off. <laughs> yeah. I'll just tune out here. No man, you gotta jump in. And um, you because we've all got you know musical preferences or stuff. But uh, one of the things that, that we often ask of our of our podcast uh, guests are is there is there a song that defines you? Is there a song that mm. that um, Let's say, let's say um, you get the call that you're going to get the Nobel Prize. Yeah. What is the song that you want played? What's the music that you want played as you're walking across the stage? You know, it's funny because I, for years, I had you, this, you think like, about this all the I had time. this dark horse complex dude. I would have said "Sound and Vision" by David Bowie because it has this lyric in it called "Drifting into my solitude over my head." So I think that's a brilliant line, right? And I think Bowie's. Yeah. And then, you know, there's songs like Soul Love, you know, because I just think it's, it might be Heroes, uh, something about Heroes, you know, Heroes was written. Heroes is a great song. It's a, it's a romance between two people on either side of the, the Berlin Wall. A lot of people don't know the story, but we recorded it in a studio right by the Berlin Wall. And it's really a simple song. You know, it's very simple. So it probably would be Heroes. Yeah. That's a great, that's a great tune. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I didn't realize, you, are, are you a big Bowie fan? 
Huge, yeah. unfortunately huge. Yeah. Yeah. Slave Raider didn't ex- didn't really reflect a lot of that. No, I always wanted Slave Raider sort of be like Alice Cooper meets David Bowie, but it sort of turned into like you know Kiss meets All Star Wrestling. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, isn't Kiss and All Star Wrestling already matched up? I kind of. Well, so to, to, to tell you a funny story, dude, when when Slave Raider was out, All Star Wrestling wasn't cool yet. Oh. It was still Vern, Vern Gagne and Sheik Adonel Casey and Sergeant Slaughter. I mean, the the stereotypes were just racist through the roof. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But our manager decides that we should partner up with these new guys, and they're called the Road Warriors, and they're two football players from St. Cloud State who also put paint on their face. And so we record some version of... Iron Man or something like okay. that. Okay. You know, it was a really great recording. It's yeah. a fun song to play. Yeah, yeah. And so we're dressed up and all in our garb, and we go down to the Minneapolis Convention Center. We walking up the ring, and there's all these kids kind of. Oh, and us this is WWF. Live. This is no. This is pre WWF. Oh, okay. Wrestling was okay. not cool yet. Dude. Okay. We still okay. had Vern Gagne and his Batman tights. But you're tights. playing. Yeah. Then. No. But that's the no, no. We're there. We're just walk out in the ring. Then suddenly we're in the ring with the Road Warriors, and I realize, hey, they're the bad guys, and people are like throwing popcorn things at us. <laughs> I'm thinking to myself. I've read Nietzsche. Right? <laughs> what is happening here? This is not how I plan things. Yeah. <laughs> that was one of those moments where I'm like, what have I gotten myself into? Yeah. Well, Vern was a you know, Minneapolis legend. So well, and, a, uh, and a brilliant promoter. Yeah. Right. He really was. Mm-hmm. An absolutely brilliant promoter. That's uh, back when wrestling was real. Yes. <laughs> oh, man. Sergeant Slaughter came up to me and he had a. Uh, it just like hundred little scars on either side of his eyes because they had little razor blades in the corner yeah. and cut themselves to bleed. He walks <gasps> up to me, he looks me up and down. He goes, I should have been a rock and roller. Walks away. All right, Sergeant Slaughter. Brush with fame. Yeah, huh? They there cut themselves in oh, yeah. order to, to, because they weren't actually cut by their opponent. No, no. go in the corner and cut themselves with this little razor blade. Yeah. Oh. So then they'd be bleeding out on the yeah. stage. Yeah. Probably yeah. one of many sad things that we don't want to know, the carny aspect of wrestling. Yeah. Well, there you go. It was entertaining. That was the Okay. David right. Hussman, thank you. Mm-hmm. Yes, thank you. We appreciate this. Fantastic stuff. Yeah, really, really good time. My pleasure. Me too. Okay. Good. Um, where was the lightning round? I didn't get the lightning We didn't round. do it. You oh, went, you went oh, right let's, in. Oh, let's let's do the lightning round. Should we do a lightning round? Let me just see if I if I miss picking up my daughter here. It's three o two. No, she's okay. She she's over at the at the state protesting. Oh oh, mm-hmm. terrific! Yeah, it's four twenty. Oh yeah, yeah, this is the day yeah. off, right? For the uh, I mean, they they have that. When Columbine shuts down. Yeah, right? exactly. Yeah. 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 Okay. David Hussman, welcome. Let's do a quick lightning round with you. Okay. You up for it? I'm. I don't know what it is, but I'll try. All right. Michelangelo versus Monet. I'm Michelangelo. Okay. Ketchup or mustard? Ketchup. Hierarchy or no hierarchy? No hierarchy. <laughs> okay, don't hesitate, all right? Just just jump <laughs> <Yeah>. right in. <laughs> all right. Any more? No, that's, I'm, I'm, I'm out. But all right, so very quick on, on the Monet versus Michelangelo. What 
what was that was pretty quick too i think mostly because michelangelo was a const- more of a builder too i mean he did yeah. more more than painting so, yeah. so much what he did you know, when you go to rome is phenomenal in the sense of perspectives and structures and all those kind oh, of things yeah, I, I mean he was everybody's worst nightmare he was such a bad boss that he fired everyone and went blind finishing the job you know so he, he probably I, wasn't a great person to be around yeah oh i didn't realize well, and, that. and he and da vinci had a horrible rivalry that we're, I mean, the, the, maybe the two right. greatest minds of the entire Renaissance, maybe in history, right? And here they are at, at odds with each other. They won't look at each other's work. They don't want to talk about it. They don't want to be in the same room together. It's mm-hmm. like, come on, you guys. Right. I need to do some history lessons. I don't know any of this. So da Vinci's, is, uh, the, um, the, uh, da the Vinci, book? yeah, autobi- recent uh, one. biography, not autobiography, <laughs> biography is just, just tremendous. All right. And hierarchy or no hierarchy, the... Well, you know, the Daniel Levinton book really talks about like where hierarchies came into the into the business world. They came in during the when two trains crashed into each other because that was like the first real big scheduling issue and he talks about we went out and looked at organizations that were successful or not and there's a direct corollary between the amount of hierarchy levels and the ability of the business to be able to pivot in the market. Yeah. Yeah, and that just resonates with me, but yeah. Yeah. And you're not a mustard guy, huh? Ooh, that was a tough one. After you said it, I sort of I waffled inside, right? Yeah. If I were more clever, I would have said like must up or something. I would have yeah. put ketchup and mustard together. Did yeah. you see the thing the Heinz was just trying to see if they should market a mayo ketchup combination? Yeah. Yeah. I like it's on... Thousand Island dressing with all the islands, right? <laughs> yeah. It, it, yeah. <laughs> I'm like right. going. Right. I don't yeah. know. I, th- I thought that. Yeah. I thought that already existed. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. Oh, Again, it's the, you know, why ask the GPS uh, where my thing is? You got mustard and ketchup. Just put them together, man. It's not that hard work, all right? Uh, I, I, I don't, I, you know. I, I don't think that's a technology issue. I want the technology to work for me. I want to make... You want the one the one, the one no, bottle that no, has it I'm, together? I'm, I'm okay with two <laughs> bottles. I'm okay, because then I get to, to dole out exactly what the ratio is. But if the GPS could just say, you know what, Tim? By about noon, because... It looks like you're going to be on the road until five today. You know, if around noon, you could stop for lunch at, at these five places. I'm with that. If you would have said Hendrix versus Van Halen, I would have panicked. <laughs> oh, really? Wow. Yeah. Couldn't I couldn't have voted. I would have just abstained. Yeah. Wow. wow. Okay. All there right. There we go. Yeah, that's, that's all. <laughs> Welcome to our grooving session, where Tim and I groove on what we learned from our behavioral groups interview, have a free-flowing discussion on some of those topics, and whatever else comes into our silly little heads. So, Tim, this was fun. I don't really know where to start, though, because David had so many different areas. So, what what do you want to talk about? Well, I, I, ha- I have to start with a, a profound question of what happens when when we introduce new technologies. What okay. does it displace? So the printing press comes in and some people were up in arms because the printing press uh, creates books and books will displace memorization, right? So what happens if we don't have to memorize books? Uh, television displacing going to the movies. Um, the phonograph, you know, there's this apocryphal story of the, of the phonograph um, get, catching, of course, the best artists of all time yeah you know and and so now all these musicians that used to work in small towns have no jobs 
hmm. because the, now you can listen to the very best. You can just listen to Caruso singing opera, not your schlummy guy who has you know who works <laughs> in the butcher shop during the day singing opera. So, so and that I, fascinated me. So going back into that technology component, the first one that you talked about, I think, is interesting because what the people were saying then is because of the ready ready availability of books memory people's memory is actually right. the way that we have to remember things is going to dissipate right. and you think about today's technology and you think about some of the things that are going on is there that component where we are actually getting to the point i don't think the printing press made memory obsolete right no but it sure but, changed what we remembered yeah and i think it 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 changed the way that we thought right and so is technology at that point today where it's doing the same thing i've read certain things about kids and it's an interesting piece for me kids being raised on technology and in the the way that it rewires their brain uh and it's not the way that your brain or my brain is wired because when they're so young and being introduced to so much technology and the video and the interactive complay of of instant gratification and all those other factors that come along with some of this. Uh, it's just an interesting concept to think about. So. so when we were growing up, the telephone didn't look like, you know, a, a small brick in our hand, right? It, it was mounted on the wall. and Yes, and... for all of our younger <laughs> listeners, you, you actually had a cord and you actually right. spun a little <laughs> dial around. You had to put your finger in a hole. And we memorized the phone numbers of people that, that we called. That's true. We had all those, those you know, my best friends, my own home, for yeah. instance, of course, those were all memorized phone numbers. Seven seven six five. Actually, I don't remember it. It's 377 was the first three digits of my growing up for the first my, 10 years of my life. My first f phone number was Keystone 2, two Keystone 23369. And so that's still in my memory today. And... I don't even know my wife's phone number. <laughs> I don't. I can't remember it. So, uh, so is it being? Is that memory being reused in a more efficient way today? Is it better because we we have now a technological collaborator in in the phone with with a list of all these these names and numbers? Or is it making our memory worse? Can we no longer remember things that we could as our memory in general worse than it was? It's an interesting topic. I don't know. Yeah. I, I have a Well, you know me. I end up with these philosophical questions that don't really have good answers. <laughs> how about you, Kurt? What what struck you? What what what, what was something that really captured your attention in the discussion with David. You know, he talked about this component where he, he mentioned, you know, we could all learn the chords GDC, but we're not going to be able to write that Neil Young song. And what I took from that was this, uh, this idea that, you know what, that knowing the basics isn't enough to be great, right? You can't just have, you can't just know GDC chords and, and expect yourself to be this groundbreaking, you know, singer songwriter. But to be that groundbreaking singer songwriter, you need to have, have, to have the basics. those basics. And mm -hmm. I think that's where he was going with some of the components that he was talking about. But I think that transfers itself to a number of other situations and another, any type of 
of industry that you get into, any type of mm-hmm. activity. I mean, if you want to be a great, you know, a football player, right? You or basketball player. I like basketball, right? Yeah, yeah. So, so you can have all the skill set in the world, but you need to know the basics. Um, well, I mean, we were at a game recently, and we were talking about uh, free throw. Yeah, you know, completion rates, right? Yeah. And, uh, of course, free throws happen all the time throughout the game, but it kind of unpredict, you know, just, they just happen, you know, the, the foul happens and yeah. you just have to go to the line and you have to perform at that moment, regardless of, of, of preparation, mental preparation, you've got 20 seconds or so yeah. to walk up to the line, grab the ball and, and go for it. Yeah. And you need to have that basic understanding. It's, a, um, so there's a documentary called Heart of Darkness. It was uh, based off of Francis Ford Coppola's uh, Apocalypse Now. I always pr- mispronounce the, that name. But you didn't. I didn't. Thank you. I, I, I practiced. Sibilance, <laughs> sibilance. Um, so, but it was based on this footage that his wife shot, uh, Eleanor, when they Francis were filming. Francis Ford Coppola's wife. Francis Ford Coppola's wife, when they were filming the documentary. And so mm-hmm. it's really interesting in like some shots of Marlon Brando and Martin Sheen and all of this. And they talk about all the craziness. So the, A, it's a really good documentary. I I encourage everybody to go out and watch it. Um, But there's a part in there where um, they're filming and Francis is talking with Dennis Hopper. Dennis Hopper was brought into the movie relatively late, two weeks, I think, you know, the time he he was hired when he went to go shoot. Wow. and he was pretty coked up, and you could just tell he is pretty wild. And and Francis was talking to him about, you know, you gotta learn your lines. Basically, was this whole component, um, and and in part of it, I think you know Dennis was going, but Brando ad libs his lines, and and then Francis said something along the lines of, if you know your lines, you can forget them. Um, that's what I'm trying to get you to do. However, you can't forget your lines if you never knew them. And so <laughs> yeah, right, there's this component right. of this. Right, that's not going to work. Yeah, th- so yeah. the forgetting of the lines because you've known them and you're in the moment, but you understand what that larger picture is trying to do and be, I think is a really interesting element. And it goes back to having those basics. And then you can start ad-libbing and you can start seeing the nuances and things. And I think there's some interesting concepts around that. So Yeah, well, and there's there's got to be behavioral components as well. No. I'm not exactly sure what they are at this very moment. But <laughs> but certainly, these influ- all of these things influence our, our behaviors, yeah. influence how we actually operate in any in, uh, in any given situation. Yeah. If I'm practiced in doing something a particular way, if I'm in a, a challenging situation, I'm probably going to rely on the way that I've practiced it. Well, and I think it gets into flow. So, and I'm oh, yeah. not going to re- be able to pronounce Chickaman's. No, yeah, 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 no, yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll put it in the show notes. Yeah. Uh, famous psychologist who talked about getting into flow and flow Chickamanzelli. No, I'm gonna. Uh, well, we'll go back. Um, and flow is this this moment where talks about where you lose sense of time and various different things. And I remember, you know, some of the interviews he had were with like quarterbacks of uh, you know yeah. star quarterbacks who have gone through that practice. And they say when they're in the moment, everything slows down for them. And you think about how fast 
football happens and all of that. But what they're actually saying is all of this is because it's just so driven into their, it's kind of, you know, muscle memory component. And so at that moment, everything slows down. And so it becomes very clear as to where they need to go and what they need to do. And so there's that behavioral component of having that underlying expertise Mm -hmm. um, that I think to a certain degree puts us in that flow state when we're in high stakes components. And it's one of the pieces that I think, you know, we've been working in behavioral science for how many, many years. And it's one of the reasons we can do this podcast. And, and I think hopefully do it well, listeners, you can let us know. Let us know. Um, Let Kurt know. (laughs) (laughs) But it's one of those factors that, you know, if you came into this without having that background, we wouldn't be having this free-flowing conversation. Yeah, so getting back to the G chord, the D chord, the C chord, right? This is the, um, if, if you're really working hard to, to play the G, the D, and the C, getting through a song, you're not going to be able to focus on a whole variety of other things. Yeah. If you're accomplished at playing the G and the D and the C, then it allows you to focus on other things. Exactly. Right? Then you can be in the moment in a, di- in a different way. Yeah. Um, speaking from personal experience. There you uh, go. Okay, what All else? Right. What else? All right. Um, so let's go here. Framing. We had some really interesting, David brought up some really interesting components on framing. Words matter. Words matter. Learning mm. versus failure. Yeah. I loved, as you, we've talked about this uh, actually after this, jam session versus meeting. Yeah. The difference that <sighs> that makes in, yeah, I'm going to go, mm. I have to go to the jam session versus, yeah, I have to go to the meeting. Even the tonal quality that I think people have when they say it, yeah. very different. And then the, uh, I think about our, we have a colleague at Carnegie Mellon University who likes to walk. Yes. And, and, and all of the serious discussions is when we're out walking. It's not when we're sitting across from each other in a table, you know, in a, in a kind of a clammy, you know, dusty room. It's out when we're, you know, when we're exploring the world. And, all of that goes back into, you know, Steve Jobs loved to have walking meetings. He did. Yes. He did. You know who else did? No, who else? Sigmund Freud. Sigmund, Sigmund Freud? Freud used to do consultations, walking consultations. All right. You know that George is like Sigmund Freud's, you know, great grandson or something. George Lowenstein? Yeah, he's actually related to Sigmund Freud. <laughs> I did not know yes, that. Yes. Maybe there's a uh, uh, maybe the walking, there's a DNA component in that. The so, walking component. Yeah. Um, so it, it's interesting. And there's so I know uh, there's also some research on this where uh, HBR, I think it was Clayton Thomas and some others, they did some surveys and they looked at people when they had uh, a walking meeting versus a uh, sit down at a table meeting. And mm-hmm. the people that were doing walking meetings had a five five point two five percent more. They, they felt that they they were more um, uh, productive, and they felt that they were more likely to be engaged, like eight and a half percent being more engaged. And the the actual ideas that they came up with were much more divergent. So ah. than the people who were sitting in the meeting. Which now, is easier for more convergent thinking. Which is exactly the opposite. So yeah. when you're trying to do some convergent thinking, walking meeting probably isn't the 
as as good yeah. to, to use. So. Don't go there. Yeah. Um, gosh, you know, uh, David mentioned Dan Levitin's book about uh, This Is Your Brain on Music. I just have to call that out because it's a great book. Why really would you is. call that out? Because it's music <laughs> and he's a scientist. <laughs> and um, Dan Levitin's a really smart guy. So I thought that that was really cool. Uh, you know, he brought up Appreciative Inquiry. Yes. Uh, as well, which you're a big fan of. I am a huge fan of Appreciative Inquiry. Uh, and David Cooper Ryder from Case Western uh, did a lot of work on that in the 80s and 90s. Yeah, it's good stuff. Uh, that we, that I actually used in the late 90s with many of our clients, really oh. looking at how do you, how do you take and frame um positive inquiry because what he's talking about is is what cooper rider is saying is that you that as humans we naturally human systems grow in the directions of the questions that we persist persistently ask uh and that they're sustained when there's a positive spin or positive push on that and so if you think about that you think about where do we go as a you know from an organizational wide system it makes sense that all right what are the questions we're asking and those are the answers that we're going to go and it's, it's a mm -hmm. leading way of driving the organization they drive culture they drive culture much like the much. words that are being used to describe a meeting versus a jam session yeah those are i think those are huge cultural influences that are underappreciated in the uh, in the corporate world for the for a large part i agree um, I agree 100%. So. Okay. Um, should we talk about music? I knew you were going to go there, and I, I yeah. have an I Oh, you've got your hat. Yeah, my hat. Yeah. If anybody has ever seen any of Tim's promotional uh, <laughs> shots for his music, he is always wearing a little, what kind of, actually, you have multiple. Yeah, How many hats do you have? Well, actually, not many. I don't know, five or six. Oh, okay. Yeah, pork pie hats. Yeah. What? Pork pie hats. Pork pie. Wait, yeah. how how did that name ever come into the lexicon? I could, I could just make some shit up right now, and I don't. You know, we <laughs> you should know? we should ask uh, our our lexicon uh, uh, interview oh, that we did. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, uh, that would be, that would be perfect. Uh, right. uh, but on on branding, but I yeah uh, they kind of came into favor with jazz musicians musicians in the what, 1920s 1930s okay and i just thought man it's just it's such a cool look and i'm as a guitarist when i'm performing i'm pulling guitars over my head and get guitar straps and yeah. stuff and with a with a narrow brim it's just easier to deal with that so there's something kind of functional about it okay so Okay, so um, I just have to relate. Um, what what I like to just talk about music-wise is I, I got to hang this week with Suzanne Vega and her band. Twice. Twice, two nights in a row. And um, I, I won't go into how I got to meet these guys, but but it's, it's um, inspiring. It's absolutely inspiring to see people who are really at the top of their game. Mm -hmm. uh, Doug Yule, the, the drummer, uh, is leaving Suzanne's tour to go on to play with Joe Jackson. And, uh, and they're going to they're gonna, uh, tour for three months and then go into the studio and record a, a new record. Okay. Uh, and um, uh, Jerry 
um, Jerry Leonard, the guitarist, uh, spent the last 15 years touring with David Bowie. Uh, just tremendous, you know, capability, you know, to to get into all these songs and just create all these amazing, uh, amazing sounds. And then Mike Visaglia on bass. Uh, has been doing kinky boots on Broadway for the past several years. Oh my gosh! And it's and the rigor of getting into an orchestra pit and playing nine shows a week, um, uh, the exact same score he says is is just invigorating. And because you get deeper and deeper into just the the nuances of how you pluck a note, how how do you approach that note, and how do you make it just perfect to be to be musical? So they're focusing on G, C, D, and C. Kind of, <laughs> kind of, they are kind of, but in a very different yeah. manner, right? Yeah. I mean, and it yeah. goes in back into um, uh, there was a a Olympic uh, gymnastic. Uh, motivational speaker, I'm forgetting his name right now, uh, who was on the 84 Olympics, right? And 80s were the ones that we boycotted, the U.S. boycotted, right? right? But he's talking that about was, the difference. They were in Russia. Yeah, the, yeah. the, the, the difference between a, a score of 9.8 and 9.4 was the virtuosity component, right? And yeah. Don't count me on the, the scoring components. But it was like, are your toes extended when you're, when you're doing a flare out and there and are your toes pointed up or are they just relaxed and various different so it's those the the minute details of what you're talking about in yeah. in some of that so so getting to see that and and getting to, then to hang with these guys and talk to them about their craft it's just inspiring to see people operating at such a high level and uh and performing it's not like everybody has to appreciate that yeah but but the fact that they care so much about their craft was in was again inspiring. So yeah. so my question for you, okay, is what musicians have inspired you, Kurt? Oh, you throw me a, a left. It's ball totally because I, I had my I'm, answer all set. For I'm you returning. I'm returning other. the favor, man. <laughs> <laughs> so inspirational. So yeah. it's interesting. Um, you know, because I look back and I think about inspirational as and I think about the music and being inspirational, I think more of when I was younger, right? Right, and, right. and, and that component of of really sitting there and just... And maybe it was something that was on your playlist a lot. Listening to that music over and over right. and over and over again. And I think, you know, there's a part of that that I could go back to my my high school days and i'd i'd mm-hmm. almost this sounds horrible acdc you know that's horrible it's it's, a, yeah. it's it's interesting because i was just i remember it was at the time when bon scott the lead singer had passed away he, oh, he yeah. you know got drunk and threw up and suffocated on his own vomit in a in a car yeah. in australia um, and then they had just come out with back in black with their with their new lead singer. And it was just one of those interesting components of the, the dichotomy of, of how you could, you know, replace this iconic figure and what that meant. And yet this still was, was, you know, ACDC. And so, you know, there's an inspiration, I guess the inspiration part, I don't know if I'm getting there, but was was the fact that they, they, picked up their you know they put on their big boy pants and they kept going yeah i think there was something they kept writing new material they They kept kept writing new material and they kept going and but then there was also the inspiration of 
we're only here for a limited amount of time. Mm. And, and what are you going to do with your life? Yeah. And I still remember uh, the Highway to Hell album cover back when we had album covers. And you look at that album cover, and it's a picture of all the band members. And Bon Scott is like the most angelic of all of the... In of, appearance. Uh, in appearance of, yeah. of the people that you go, oh, if I had to meet somebody in, a, in an alley, I wouldn't want to meet, you know... Either <laughs> the know, anybody, but you know, he'd be okay. I would yeah. be, you know, he looks like he's nice and different mm-hmm. things. Um, and so I, the, you know, there's a part of that that said tragedy can happen to anybody at that point. So, yeah. yeah. So there we go. Okay. All right. All righty. Well, I, I think that's a wrap for for, <laughs> was, for today, folks. You know, that behavioral groups was almost the grooming session was almost as weird as our conversation <laughs> with David. <laughs> I mean, it was just all over the place, yeah. but it was fun. Yeah. So, so thanks for joining us. Thanks for listening in. And uh, as Kurt mentioned earlier, give us a good rating on. Um, on the podcast, wherever you wherever you listen to your podcasts, uh, wherever you catch your podcasts, and um, we are uh, in the process of re- uh, releasing a, a whole bunch of, of new podcasts right now. And check us out on YouTube as well. Yeah, this will be you can see the studio if you so like. Hey, <laughs> all right. Have a great day. <laughs> <laughs>